Welcome everyone. Today uh, we have a very amazing guest at Seed Camp HQ. Uh, by the way, this is Carlos. And uh, our guest is none other than Malcolm Bell. Uh, Malcolm Bell is uh, the founder of MailCloud and we'll jump into what MailCloud is in a few. But uh, he was also uh, a founder of, of Zagora, uh, which we'll hear about in a second. But he started off his, uh, his career uh, in a, kind of an interesting way after he graduated uh, from LSE. So maybe we can pick up from your, your graduation and what was your first job? What was the first thing you did? So my first job after I left LSE was actually going to work for a guy called Vincent Chengiz. Uh, him and his brother Robert had set up a property empire, they were tycoons frequently in the Financial Times and I'd actually met them uh, in 1998, I think, when I was 16, very young. And even before I went to university, I'd worked with those guys for a couple of years and they were kind of pioneers in, you know, all the things that caused the financial crisis, right? Like structured finance, leveraged finance, you know, buying assets and not putting any equity in or debt. And so they taught me um, data, they taught me modeling, they taught me uh, how to be a hustler, I'd say, uh, because they were Jewish, they were Persian, um, and, you know, to kind of work their way around the British property market, which was kind of really dominated when they started by kind of the upper class, took a lot of hustle. Um, and so I, w I worked after I left uh, LSE for Vincent for about a year, um, got bored, then I went to work for uh, a Greek family office managing their investments, um, bought five, six hundred million pounds worth of you know, assets, companies, then financial crisis, and then went to back to work for some other family offices um, that had nothing but kind of problem loans and problem assets. And I did loan restructurings for 18 months, which was interesting, I think, for like the first week. Uh, but then afterwards was just incredibly boring. And then approaching 30, end of 2010, early midlife crisis, I just didn't want to do this anymore. And so I took a few months off and uh, my wife had this crazy idea of a product that would help women work out that I thought was interesting. It was consumer. I could go back to being what I was when I was a kid, which was like an entrepreneur. My first business was when I was seven years old, selling my magic shows to my parents. Uh, and I could just do something totally different. I'd been very lucky to have probably made far more money than I should have in those kind of family office years because the market was just so insane. And so we set up Zagora. Um, so and before that, we go to Zagora, sure. I think for the audience to sort of understand Malcolm, the person, a little bit more, it's probably worth qualifying that one of the things that a lot of the other founders here at Seedcamp really uh, admire about you and also kind of the ecosystem as well is, one, you're, you're well known as, as somebody who's really good at hustling, like in terms of how you... You raise capital the way that you also uh, seek out connections and partnerships and you work with others and the way you give. So that's one thing you're very well known for. You're also very well known for growth hacking and, and achieving um, this real pre-interest in, in something. And then lastly, you know, a lot of the things that you're, you're well known for is this, this element of like succeeding not only in Zagora, but like in taking something and scaling it. And so we're, in this podcast, we're going to cover those three things. And I think that the Zagora story is probably a very good one to sort of dissect. And, and we pick it up from your wife had an idea. Yeah. So my wife had an idea. I was bored. Uh, it's always a combustible mix. And um, it was for a product that she wanted herself because she had a problem, which was she was working for a bank, only had 30 minutes every lunchtime to work out. And she wanted a solution to that so that she could perhaps get more out of her workout. So she had this crazy idea, which was for a product that she could wear um, that were literally pants that made her hot. Uh, of course, my kind of you know, marketing brain went off and thought, wow, hot pants. Um, and you would wear them and they would literally heat you up whilst you exercise, so you get more, um, more output really from the same input. 
And so the idea was to, let's see if anyone is even interested. We made, I think, 500 pairs. Uh, we gave them away to women on Twitter. We asked them to try it for a week and then write an honest review on our Facebook page. Um, I had this whole kind of concept of a sort of feedback loop whereby we would then kind of display those feedback and reviews uh, on our website. And then when people came to the website, they'd see the reviews. Um, and never did I think that it would kind of take off the way that it did. Um, but what do you think? I mean, why do you think it took? Was it, was it because of stuff you did? Or was it because it just, it just, it was hot pants. I mean, it just resonated. Like it was so dead simple that anything else that you did was just inconsequential. Yeah, I think there's a number of reasons that it kind of took off. So we bootstrapped to $40 million in, in sales in our first 18 months. Um, we grew a customer base, I think, in 153 countries, 500,000 customers. We grew the team to like 60 people. Um, it was just really quite dizzying how kind of fast it all happened. And I think it took off for a number of reasons. So hot pants, the idea for women that work out, you know, pants that make you hot, that's a kind of a purple cow of an idea, I think, right? So Seth Godin, marketing genius, gave birth to the idea of the purple cow, uh, something that is different, something that is remarkable. You don't see a purple cow every day. And I think for women that work out, they were used to the sort of Nike dry fit or the climber cool. Um, and we went completely the opposite direction, which was to say, no, 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 like you don't want to get cool, you want to get hot, right? We want to bake you up. Um, and a product called Hot Pants that resonated certainly with the core demographic of women in their 30s and 40s, they have these very positive associations with Hot Pants, right? From when they were younger, maybe the 60s or 70s, whatever. And so I think that was a big part of it. I think the second part of it was we were able to grow so fast because we leveraged the new tools of the time. So new tools in 2011 were organic engagement with people on social, through Twitter, through Facebook, before really Facebook platform in particular enabled the kind of volume and scale that advertisers could run to people. So early Facebook advertisers like Zynga, uh, super early, 2008, 2009, Facebook always had ads, but it wasn't really until 2010, 2011 that the ad tech on the Facebook platform allowed me as an advertiser to set up campaigns and start targeting such a big number of people. So the growth was driven, I think, because it was a catchy idea. So that was what helped certainly conversion to purchase the reviews that we were able to build into the sort of user journey when people came to the website, which is where we obviously sold the product, they saw positive reviews, so that lifted the conversion. Um, I think growth is really a function of three things. It's kind of payload, frequency, and conversion. And that was actually um, a kind of mantra that was instilled into Alex Schultz, VP of Growth at Facebook, who told me this. And it was Sean Parker who told him. And he'd figured this out at Plaxo. Um, it was really payload, conversion, and frequency. So payload is how many people you're able to reach uh, through your broadcasting, your messaging, your marketing, whether it's paid or whether it's free. What is the conversion of those people to desired action? If it website sign up, is it purchase, is it click, what is it? And then there's frequency, so how many times do you hit that person? And so we were able to start getting a lot of volume in terms of our reach to people on Facebook because Facebook platform was then enab enabled us to run these kind of big ad campaigns. So we started spending a lot of money on Facebook ads. That brought a lot of people to the website. The conversion was higher because of the reviews. And then we also used other new channels at the time. So we would run, in 2011 in particular, a lot of um, deals with Groupon. And Groupon would, say, have a national deal, which would be like, I don't know, get a pair of shoes for 20 rather than 40. And maybe, you know, a thousand people nationally would buy that. When we ran our first deal, which was get a pair of hot pants for 20 quid rather than 50, we sold 22,000 pairs in three days. And again, I think it's the conversion. Um, also, I think we were lucky with Groupon because up until that point, Groupon 
through 2010 and 2011 had mainly been local deals and services, like get a haircut, get your teeth whitened, mm. all that kind of stuff. And I was the one that said to Groupon in, I think it was April 2011, you guys should do product. Like, why don't you actually sell products on Groupon, right? And they're like, well, how would that work? You know, hairdressers and restaurants and bars, we get it. But how would product work? And I said, well, you know, I've got a website. People currently get a Groupon voucher. They take it to the merchant in a restaurant, in a bar. What difference is there from coming to a website and handing the website merchant their voucher? Uh, and that actually was what inspired Groupon Goods that became a billion-dollar business. Um, I don't want to take full credit for that, but it was that time when we were started running deals on Groupon for physical product that all of those, mainly women, um, users that had signed up to Groupon in the UK, six, seven million of them, had seen a product offer. And I think that also had um, quite a big impact. So we were lucky. Long story short, we were lucky. I think. Well, you, you weren't lucky. There was two things that you did there that I can you know, um, sort of identify. The first one is you had a hypothesis around uh, positioning, which was contrary to what everybody else was doing. Everybody else was doing cool, cool fit, cool dry, cool whatever. And you took a ballsy move of not saying, these guys are smart, let me triple down on cool. You said, this is insane perhaps, mm -hmm. but let's go down the hot path. And I think that that's something that's worth discussing for a lot of people who might not necessarily take that risky, uh, that risky juncture of like saying, actually, I'm gonna go completely off the beaten path, but it makes it sticky, right? And the second thing, which is actually, um, quite compelling is getting early on in a platform that is novel for people to convert on because it hasn't been saturated with crap, right? Yeah. And I think that if you if you look at you know the average sort of mail drop, like physical mail drop in my home, mm -hmm. there's a lot of flyers about pizzas and right. you know transport services. So I discard that medium as one that was valuable. But one time when the postal service probably started up, it was quite high conversion, right? Right. right. And so as you as the way you described it, Groupon and Facebook, they had their their moments of complete openness and, and pre-establishing uh, their, their, their platforms in, in a formal sense. Yeah. Now it's expensive and now it takes a lot more. So Absolutely. maybe if you were to start Zagora again right now mm. and you took the same positioning, meaning like the market was still ripe for that position to be novel, mm. what platform do you think is young enough today as a distribution mechanism that still has that novel approach? It's just curious. Yeah. So. Um, we found that people responded much more in terms of click-through rates, yeah. depending on um, the, the more optimized, the more eye-catching the imagery. So we were able to, because we had a physical product that people wore, we were able to um, take photos of those products, right? Mm -hmm. So it was a visual medium for us. Mm -hmm. um, visual, photos, always engages people and, and converts people better than plain text because we process images 30,000 times faster than we do text. Uh, everyone uses photos to sell their product. iPhone, you know, new iPhone is available. What is the thing they focus on? Look how beautiful your photos look. Mm -hmm. Invite someone today from Facebook. People don't really do this anymore, but invite someone not already on Facebook. They get an email saying, check out my photos on Facebook, right? So new platforms are, are very visual, still not kind of super new, but uh, Pinterest, very visual medium, Instagram, Snapchat. Um, I think some of the newer networks uh, that have opened up um, like hello might be interesting, but I don't think that we would be able to have the same growth success today if we started Zagora than we had when we did it in 2011. Yeah. Period. 
Yeah. Just no matter what which channels we use, because you know the com the combination of being able to run deals on Groupon, reach people on Facebook at relatively low ad cost, now yeah. you know higher, to be able to get pretty high click through rates, yeah. because again the people on Facebook hadn't seen as many ads before. Um, the way that we were able to use the social engagement that we were able to build on Facebook for free, right? Yeah. Because bear in mind, back in 2011, yeah. if I had you know 50,000 fans of my page, yeah. I do a post, half of them are probably going to see it. If I post today, maybe 5,000 are going to see it. You know, Facebook makes you pay to reach the rest, uh, as any yeah. advertiser would. So, Well, that's an interesting point, because basically you're saying is that not only is the idea a time-bound thing, like, and there's an opportunity for the idea of hot pants where nobody else is doing it, but there are also the distribution channels have an expiration opportunity, right? If tomorrow, two years from now, uh, the drone advertising network takes off and we just have drones hover, hovering over us with some advertising, that might be the next sort of quantum yeah. of novelty that requires it. And there's a lot of research that shows that, right? So the first banner ad ever, the first display ad ever, was run in 1994 by AT&T. And it had a 40% click rate. Like 40% of the people that hit the page that had the banner clicked it because they'd never seen it before, right? And it's the same with, um, it's the same kind of back to the purple cow idea. It's something different, it's something new, it's something remarkable. Yeah. Ooh, what's that? Yeah. Um, and so there will always be new channels. There will always be new ways of engaging with people. But it probably is a once in 10 year event that a yeah. Facebook or a Google comes along that enables you to reach so many people at such volume yeah. so quickly. Because the thing about Facebook is the monster scale. Yeah. Uh, and so new channels that come along yeah. in which you can scale, those don't come along very often. Okay. And they're only new ones, right? Yeah. And so, all right, so like, now that we've sort of made those two, two big points, now let's go a little bit deeper um, for, for the audience. Um, Malcolm also does a lot of mentoring. Uh, he's done hackathons. He, he, does, he mentors at hackathons and he mentors at Facebook events. So he's got a lot of experience with this. But maybe if we abstract it out from Facebook in specific, mm -hmm. let's just assume that you've now gotten all this traffic uh, and it's potentially converting or not. What are, the, what are the things that you've done or that you continue to do to drive conversion on, on effectively once they've clicked through and they're, they're latent? What, what other tools or things did you do in Zagora, and we'll, we'll get to MailCloud in a bit, to get that funnel conversion to the next step Sure. So and re-engagement? So there's kind of, in terms of daily, daily activity that was marketing-based, I left Zagora two years ago, so some of my knowledge may be a little bit out of date. But... There's the kind of prospecting, so finding new people, new potential customers, new potential users, and how you get them into the funnel. Yeah. And then there's obviously re-engagement and remarketing, so people have already come to the bottom of your funnel. So in terms of prospecting, once we got people to the website, um, our goal was to obviously optimize them to convert. And there was all sorts of things that we did that we found improved the conversion rate. So one of them would be, you know, reducing the number of steps from landing on whatever landing page to actually getting to the checkout page. Um, Pre-populating as much data for people as possible. Um, capturing their data so that before they even fill in their checkout details, they put in their email address. So if they drop out the cart, you can email them straight away. Um, those sorts of mechanics. Otherwise, we found that showing people on the checkout page you know, smiley, happy faces actually improve conversion. Um, again, the hypothesis was if I see smiley, happy people on the page, it's a reaffirmation as to what I'm going to get as a, as a customer if I buy the product, mm -hmm. little things like that. Um, otherwise, it, the, the process by which we went about optimizing perhaps is 
more interesting to people than what we actually did because what you do is going to vary depending on what your business or your startup is. If it's a service, is it a product, is it digital, is it an app, is it a web? And so the process was just looking simply at every single step of the user journey and observing what is the conversion to the action we want the user to take on that step. You know, how many people are clicking, if that's the desired action, how many people are checking out. And then to literally make a long list of all the possible things that are influencing that survey people, ask them, um, ask people that in particular drop out or don't take the event, why didn't you take the event? And then you literally methodically work through that list and you optimize each, every single thing. Mm-hmm. A lot of startups that I've met seem to think that there's some kind of a magic bullet or a silver bullet, and that is growth hacking. All I have to do is split test the color of the button mm-hmm. or change the copy, but it's not. Optimization is literally micro uh, improving each every each and every single little thing that can impact the conversion that you're targeting. Mm-hmm. So the speed at which the page loads, the placement of the button, the copy that you use, the relevancy that you can build in for the user. There's lots of little things, and so you ultimately reach uh, a more optimal position by improving each of these little tiny things. You know, one percent here, half a percent there. So how do you there. how do you go about road mapping that? Because I think it takes a lot of self awareness sure. to overrule uh, assumptions Mm -hmm. that you might have about what's wrong and what isn't, right? Right. Like, you might actually not have thought about that maybe the bandwidth is an issue. You might have not thought, for example, we we were investors in a company way back when in my previous fund called Gomez, and it would do performance analysis on airlines. And for example, if, if one airline's page loaded, slower it just meant less bookings because somebody would go somewhere else right and so how do you map out <coughs> with zagora and you know in MailCloud as well it's like how do you take it a very sort of high level okay what am i not seeing that the sure. customer might be seeing what, what process do you go internally so i think that the the best approach um that i've so far been able to kind of you know refine i think for myself is to start very high level so what is the objective um, is it, you know, it has to be one event at a time. You're optimizing for an event which might be install or invite mm-hmm. or purchase. And so the very high level is what is the supply that affects that? So Nilan Parish, VP of Growth at TransferWise, um, actually did a talk here at Seedcamp to Academy that was fascinating because he said the most important thing when it comes to growth and optimization is your supply. So it doesn't matter how well optimized your web page is, if it's a checkout page or if it's a product page or an e-com site, if the product isn't in stock, it doesn't matter how well optimized it is, the, per- the, the, the user can't take that action. Mm-hmm. So the first thing is to work out what is your supply um, and to be sure that you have the supply. Then I think it is to literally kind of work out what is important to me as a business and as a startup right now. Maybe I've got three months left worth of runway. Maybe it is to demonstrate to investors that I can get users, that people will install the product and I can build a viral loop or I can, I can grow this thing or I can get people to use the product. So what is the, the, the most important thing for you as a startup right now? Uh, and then to kind of prioritize that list if there are several things. Mm-hmm. And then you choose, that's the one thing I want to optimize for now. I want to optimize for that in this kind of a time period. And then these are all of the things that I think I can do to optimize that. Mm-hmm. So the sequence of steps the user or the customer is taking is say X. There are 10 different steps. What is it that we can optimize on each of those steps? Go out and talk to people who are taking those steps and ask them, why didn't you take the action? Why didn't you click? Why didn't you install? Why didn't you invite? 
Um, what was it that you were thinking at the time? Watch people doing that. There's a great product called Appsy that lets you kind of watch user sessions. You've got to be careful with data privacy because it's people's personal stuff. But you literally look at you know all the things that could impact that objectively, not what you think is cool, what you think looks good, what you think is a good user experience. It's objectively, you know, how is it users are passing through the funnel? Uh, and then how is it that you can optimize whatever it is? It might be the load speed. It might be the color of the button. It might be the copy. Uh, my point is that it, it's never one thing. Yeah. It's always going to be a combination of lots of things. Yeah. And to optimize lots of things takes time. And so you're never going to optimize a funnel, whatever the funnel is, in a week. It's going to take you a month, two, three months, right? It's going to take time. Yeah. But you should be seeing incremental improvements. So your click rate, if that's the thing you're optimizing for, goes from 5% to 7% after mm -hmm. you made the change. Great. How do we now get it to 9%? Let's change this, let's change that. Yeah. Also try and only change one thing at a time. Because if you change five things on that particular step yeah. and your conversion rate doubles, you don't know what did it. What did it, right? Yeah. So it's, it's it takes a lot of discipline. What I find is and that... How did you figure this stuff, all stuff out? I mean, this, I mean, this is stuff that you know, now is almost kind of like, a, a, to some extent, well-known, but... But at least for those that are in the startup circle for a while. But in Zagora, I mean, you were a first-time yeah. e-commerce founder. How yeah. did you figure this stuff out? Just experimenting? Learning by doing. Okay. Um, it really was learning by doing, making mistakes, doing things that didn't work. Um, but also because I didn't come from you know, a digital background, an e-commerce background, um, I hadn't been doing that for the years prior. All I had to rely on really was like logic. Yeah. You know, logically, like what's going on here? Logically... What are we optimizing for? Logically, what could be influencing that? So a lot of it was logic. I also read a lot. So my kind of secret weapon is I read. Um, and so I read a shit ton of books, frankly. <laughs> top books, top books. So, so I mean, the, the, what I started with, which I think a lot of people start with, was Lean Startup, Eric Ries. Um, Startup Owner's Manual by Steve Blank, his kind of, you know, Jedi master, uh, I think is actually more interesting. All about that process by which you go about discovering what are the features, who is the customer, which channels in which do you acquire them, the idea of the lean canvas, you know, to give you to give you like a kind of a framework at yeah. least in which you can at least kind of you know think about things yeah. was very useful. Um, and then specific specific topics. So the idea of how is it you position the product. So positioning Al Reese, you recommended that one to me. Awesome. Prior I'd read um, a lot of um, a lot of Seth Godin's books, not just Purple Cow, but other ones. Um, and so just, you know, reading and reading and reading how other startups have done it, how other people have kind of gone through the process, going through the process myself. It's like kind of reading Alan Carr's The Easy Way to Stop Smoking and kind of you're smoking as you're reading it, right? Yeah. And so you kind of try these things as you are reading these different books. And what you realize is that there is no secret formula. There is no secret recipe. Um, you know, success or optimization is really uh, a function of, you know, time, commitment, persistence, perseverance, being curious. Um, and, and, you know, the more you put in, the more you get out, right? Yeah. Talking about success, so what, uh, uh, can you disclose Zagora's uh, sort of like success or? Yeah, so I mean, in our first year, um, we made $17 million. Mm -hmm. uh, our profit margin was around 20% on that. So that was like 3.4 profit or something. Um, there's a Harvard Business School case study on, mm. on, on our first 18 months at Zagora called, called I think, 18 months in a startup. Yeah. You can just Google you know, Harvard Zagora and you'll find it. Um, second year, we made uh, $12 million. So we dropped five. And then third year, we made like six. So you look at this business and you're like, 
it's a fucking disaster, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it went from 17 million top line to 12 to six. Mm-hmm. But that is largely because in the first year we did so many Groupon deals, which mm-hmm. were discount deals, which were promotion mm-hmm. deals. If you look at the organic sales, first year we only did two, second year we did four, third year we did six. So, yeah. so actually you look at it from an organic, like real sale, full price perspective, and you're like, wow, this business is doubling every year, right? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I'd been lucky to have made money before Zagora. We were lucky to have made money on Zagora. We actually reinvested most of the profits that we made in Zagora back into the business um, to grow it. And so, um, and we didn't, and we haven't sold it, right? So no investors, yeah. no debt. Um, so yeah, so it was a nice, it was a nice learning curve. The reason I left Zagora in October 2013 to start MailCloud is because um, I just, you know, realized quite early on in the Zagora journey that I wasn't the customer. It was a female customer base. I certainly didn't feel the pain of the problem of maximizing my workouts, mm. largely because I don't work out. Yeah. Uh, and if anyone could see me, you'd, you'd see that. Uh, and so, you know, I wasn't solving a problem for myself. I kind of felt like I had done what I'm really good at. You know, so getting it off the ground, putting the team in place, putting the channels in place, kind of putting everything in place. Um, and so we also had a baby with my wife, beautiful baby boy. And it was just like a nice time to kind of do something new. Um, and logically, again, I went through this process of, I kind of went through Sequoia's Grove, you know, these are the 10 things we look for in the perfect startup. And I just evaluated different ideas I had through those different points. Um, and so I ended up building, starting work on MailPlat because it was a problem that I had. And it's always best, I think, to work on something that you want and to solve a problem for yourself, right? Yeah. So an interesting thing about MailCloud before we just jump right straight into it is that, you know, um, for Zagora, you didn't raise external capital, but MailCloud, you decided to. Um, and, you know, you, you, you have some compelling investors as well. But I, why, why that change? Why that change of like, now I'm going to build a venture-backed business, sure. you know, and it's going to be in this other space, nothing to do with e-commerce. Like, why, why all these different variables that you included now sure. in, the new, in the new company? So for MailCloud, um, we, I, I kind of funded it for the first, you know, seven or eight months um, with money that I'd made from Zagora. I committed like a million dollars. I funded like 500, 600,000 of that. And then we did a seed round. I think it was October last year. Um, you guys invested from your new fund. Octopus Investments led the round. Um, Bessemer Venture Partners did their first seed round in Europe ever. They put money in. Um, and then we had some really awesome angels like Barry Smith from founder of Skyscanner and Ray Nolan and um, some of the guys at Facebook and Frederick Kaur, um of, of Advent now, Felix Capital. And so... The idea of raising money from external investors was firstly in recognition that we we didn't want to raise any money at Zagora because A, we didn't feel like we needed to, right? So we were cash flow positive very quickly. We had a you know reasonable net profit margin. The business was growing. Um, we were arrogant in that we thought we knew everything uh, because we used to work in investments and we're just awesome and look what we're doing and everything is kind of working. And so what is it that anyone can tell us that's of use? Um, it was a pure kind of, you know, direct-to-consumer model. It was all online, didn't need any help from people that had network relationships in terms of building like a SaaS business or finding corporate partners or some of the things that obviously investors can do. Um, 
But the other thing, the other reason, so by raising money, you get all of that. Right? If, if I'm building a product, which is MailCloud, which is to help people work easier and faster um, on mobile using emails and files and messages, then the kind of product challenges, scaling challenges, infrastructure and technology challenges that we're going to have will be easier to solve if we've got experience around the table. Yeah. That was big reason number one. Big reason number two was... There's a lot of accountability that comes from raising money from other people, right? It's not your money anymore. Yeah. Um, and obviously, I think it also depends on your personality. But when it's your own money, yeah, you can lose it, but you're making all the decisions to affect that. When it's other people's money, that kind of comes with an extra layer of responsibility. Yeah. And I find that that extra level of responsibility forces you to be more disciplined and considered mm. when we're making all sorts of decisions. Mm. Um, and I think the final reason really was that, you know, in technology in particular or venture, it is the only kind of part of the financial market where it matters where the money comes from. Mm. You know, you want to take a mortgage, you'll take the best rate you can get, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter who gives you the money. Uh, if you're a, you know, fund manager, does it really matter who your LPs are or does it matter how much money you've raised, yeah. right? But when you're a startup and you're raising money from venture capitalists, big difference between getting money from Andreessen Horowitz yeah. or, um, you know, brand new fund no one's ever heard of. Yeah. Because the whole market is like, wow, Andreessen just put money into these hot new thing. Yeah. Magic leap. No one even knows what it is. Yeah. But because they put money in, it must be really awesome. Yeah. And so you kind of have that halo effect that you can kind of, you know, create for yourself. Yeah. Um, and then also, I think that there's a lot of smart startups now raising money through AngelList syndicates and money from people in AngelList. Because if you are, if you go out and raise, say, money from 500 guys on AngelList, it's small tickets. That's 500 potential customers, users, yeah. evangelists that you're putting in your pocket yeah. right away. So it was for those reasons. Okay, and the the product of MailCloud, I mean, we talked about it a little bit briefly. Um, you started off with with a, a hypothesis and, you know, the hypothesis has evolved, but one of the things that you needed to do early on is, is sort of get a feeling for how compelling this hypothesis was for people. Maybe you can walk through kind of the learnings that you took from Zagor that you then applied to testing out this this process of, 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 of interest even though the product was still sort of in private. Right. So I took a lot of the things that I'd learned certainly from the kind of marketing experience and the customer engagement experience at Segura into MailCloud. So the original idea for MailCloud was um, recognizing that I was just flipping through my uh, Outlook one day and I realized that in 2011 I had like 180,000 emails or something. And if you work it out per day, it's like 400. And every day uh, in the evening, I would have to kind of spend an hour or two organizing my organization, putting things in the right place. I would use nine or ten different services. I had my kind of file storage apps, my email apps, my own internal kind of team communication apps. You know, then it was HipChat. Today it would be Slack. Um, I had my project management tools, you know, my Basecamp, my Trellos, whatever. And so I had to spend like, so much time organizing all of this stuff. In particular, I was out and about a lot, so I'd go to the warehouses to meet you know, the logistics partners and I'd fly out to Hong Kong and I'd see the suppliers. And so I was working a lot on my phone. And the very simple things of you know, managing files on my phone, knowing what the team was doing on my phone when I was out of the office, just seemed to be much harder than they really were. And so it was a recognition that you know, there's a long way to go in terms of helping people being more productive on mobile. 
because mobile was the new thing, right? Yeah. So the world is shifting to mobile. Back then, 2011, maybe a billion people had a smartphone. Now two billion people have yeah. a smartphone. That's two billion people that effectively, in the words of Ben Evans, have a supercomputer in their pocket, right? Yeah. And so, so much of the software that we use on a daily basis, in particular in the office and the workplace, that's kind of productivity focused, was actually built in a desktop era. You know, Dropbox was desktop first. Uh, even to this day, Slack is desktop first. And yet increasingly people are working on mobile. So uh, I realized that, you know, I had this problem of how do I manage all of my stuff? And if I have this problem, other people might. Yeah. So I, I did what I used to, did in the early days of Zagora. I sent an email to like everyone in my contacts, 2,000 people or something, and just said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking of this idea. You know, what are the biggest problems that you have kind of with your um, emails and files and, and chat messages, in particular on your phone? And, and from that, maybe, you know, 500 people responded, which 25% is pretty good, yeah. uh, even though I know them. Uh, the, other, the, other, the other 1,500, shame on you, um, for not responding. And so it was a whole kind of range of things. But mm. when, you, when you looked at the individual responses and the individual things that people said, there was definitely a theme there. And there was a trend there. So I thought there was a big enough opportunity to help people work easier and faster, in particular on mobile. And that was the sort of the vision, and that is very much the kind of the mission. But what would the feature set be or what would the product be that would actually help people to work easier and faster? Mm. Uh, we had our ideas, but we didn't really know. And so that's when uh, I thought, okay, there's definitely enough here to maybe build a business. I hired five or six awesome engineers, took me a few months. We set up an office and between February and I think May, June last year, we literally would build prototype after prototype, you know, visual prototypes using Proto.io and we'd send them to people as surveys. And we interviewed a couple thousand people in person and remotely saying, you know, what do you think of this? Does this solve the problem of finding files in your emails? Or what do you think of this? Does this you know, help you know what your team members are doing in real time? And that began, began to sort of give us certainly some feature direction. Um, so what, what are the top three sort of lessons learned during that um, sort of mm, discovery phase? Sure. So I'd say that the, the first thing is that I realized is it's remarkable how much people will tell you if you just ask. Yeah. Um, if you just ask the kind of user that your kind of hypothesis and your customer persona is, yeah. you know, the sorts of problems that they have and is this solution that you're thinking of an interesting one, like in solving it, it's amazing how much feedback they'll give you. Yeah. So ask people. You know, you have to actually ask people. Yeah. Second thing is you have to ask a lot of people. So I've, I've you know, talked to a lot of startups that have done a survey with you know 50 people or 20 people or 100 people, it's not statistically significant, right? Like it needs to really be more than 100 responses to, to be able to derive any kind of you know um, validation for the numbers. Mm. And so you've got to go out and ask hundreds of people. The good thing about that is that you know it's very easy now to reach people, right? You mm. can do a post on Facebook and on Twitter and email everyone in your contacts book. Mm. Um, if you go to LinkedIn and you go to your settings, you can export all of the email addresses of your LinkedIn contacts. Mm. Email those guys. And since most people don't get any value out of LinkedIn, for me, it's great just to be able to like email everyone and say, hey, we're connected on LinkedIn. I don't really know you, but by the way, I'm working on this problem. You know, are you the piano person that can help me find it? You know, 500 of my LinkedIn contacts responded. So there's all sorts of ways that you can go about getting feedback. But I'd say get feedback from people, ask people questions, really try and understand who are the people that you're asking that seem to find the solution the most compelling and how many people like that are there, right? So... You know, are they lawyers? Lots of lawyers. Mm. Or are they, you know, guys in their 20s that live at home that have hamsters? Mm -hmm. Smaller market, right? Mm. 
And so you have to ask people questions. You have to ask a lot of people questions, um, and you, it's it's a time-consuming process because it's all qualitative data. Mm. It's not like numbers on a dashboard, right? Mm. It's going up, going down. The key is to understand why the numbers going up and why the numbers going down and why are people saying what they're saying. Mm. And when we kind of go through this process and you spend time on this, you realize that the the reason that people find certain things to be painful, so uh, for which you want to design a you want to be a painkiller, not a vitamin, right? is because of certain reasons. So for instance, I can't send a file to a contact right now in Apple Mail. I can't send a file to you without leaving Apple Mail because iOS doesn't have a file storage system. You can't save files to your iPhone. Mm. Now that's where you know Dropbox comes in and G Drive comes in, but how do your files get there? You have to manually put them there, right? And so when you start to observe these kind of like structural weaknesses, and, and structural reasons or whatever reasons, you can then start to craft a solution that actually it's a no-brainer because there's no other way of doing what you're going to enable people to do. Yeah. And that's kind of exciting, right? Yeah. Um, so high level, whatever you do, whether it's optimization or learning from users or asking people questions, it's a very time-consuming process. And a lot of people fatigue and a lot of people kind of you know burn out because mm. it just requires a, 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 a crazy amount of mm. dedication. And that's why you have to solve a problem for yourself because you have the, that level of passion that yeah. is going to get you through those kind of dark moments. Yeah. And everyone's going to be like, you know, from time to time, am I building something people want? Why do yeah. all my users hate me? Why aren't people using the product? You, know, yeah. you have all these doubts, right? Um, the only way that you're going to get through is if you have a passion. Yeah. And, and I think to some extent the, the opportunity right now for you to, to still iterate is, is going on as you're about to launch. Um, it, because of the fact that you're about to launch. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of the discovery has been around um, uh, how to build up that list of potential customers, right? right. That sort of latent need on something that you're promising them. Mm -hmm. And so, that actually, what's interesting is maybe we do a follow-up podcast once you've launched sure. to see how that's mapping to expectations and downloads and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But maybe as a parting thought, um, what other elements of the lessons learned at Zagora? Um, have you not had work this time around? What, what things were you like, ah, I'm just going to do that again. And, oh, shit, maybe I misunderstood that lesson or I had to tweak it the specific way. Mm. Is there anything that you could say, like, just didn't work the same way you expected it as far as you have right now? Because obviously sure. you haven't launched yet. So. Yeah. So I think the biggest difference was in the, in the first six months of Zagora, we built up our Facebook fan page to like 30,000, 40,000 people because we were able to get a lot of organic engagement with people on Facebook platform without having to pay for ads. Mm. You can't do that anymore. So we set up a fan page for MailCloud and we have like, you know, five or 600 likes or something. Mm. Not a channel that's going to work. Um, otherwise, I think because the products are so different, you know, MailCloud is a purely digital product. There is no kind of physical, right? We haven't got to make anything or ship something to a customer. There's nothing to buy. Um, it's, it's quite different to obviously having a pure play e-commerce website where it's all about getting people to come and buy something for 40, 50, 60 dollars or pounds or whatever. Um, so there's not many things that I can think of. Certainly things that worked are the kind of early engagement and the early buzz with core target users. Mm -hmm. That also paid off this time. Mm -hmm. So identifying who is the likely user for the kind of product that we're building at MailCloud. Let's target that person on Facebook, on Twitter with some kind of very small ad spend campaigns. Do they convert? Yes, mm -hmm. they do. That works. Um, 
But I wouldn't say that there's much that, that didn't work this time that we tried the first time for Zagora because they're just such different businesses. Yeah. Like the whole kind of playbook is different. Yeah. Um, it's the same sort of trade craft, I think, in the sense of the approach that you take, mm-hmm. methodical, you know, step by step, lots of small things, but they're very different things. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest learning from Zagora was that you can have a methodology and a process and a framework and apply that to anything. Yeah. It's just the individual things that you do for whatever business or startup or product is going to be different. Cool. But the process is the same. I mean, obviously, for for those that are desperate to get their hands on MailCloud, what what should (laughs) they do? Yeah, so anyone can go to mailcloud.com and register to try the app. Um, We knew that it would be a long time of development. So we set up our website last February. Since February, I think last year, up until now, we have about 42,000 people that have registered their details to try the product. And that is such now that we don't need to really worry about how we go about kind of getting people into the funnel because there's enough people there. Obviously, as time goes by, some people drop off and fatigue and their email address changes and all that. Um, but what we're seeing so far in terms of inviting people from that list to try early beta, which we're doing right now, is it's, it's pretty high engagement. Open rates are very high. Um, and we're also looking to kind of try and grow the product uh, as much organically as possible. So we haven't got to go out and acquire users. Users will bring in other users. And that's, um, there's an interesting pattern that we're starting to see um, that is quite exciting. Exciting. Well, so, yeah. we look forward to hearing the rest of the story at, at once you've launched. Thank you. And thanks for joining us, Malcolm, and talk to you guys later. Thanks Bye. for listening.